politics, music, technology, roller coasters, golf carts, and the greatest country on earth. National Review's new show, the Charles C. W. Cook Podcast, that's me, explores the scenic highways and byways of American political and cultural life. Featuring interviews with leading writers, thinkers, and public figures, every episode offers a fresh perspective on the promises and challenges facing America. Don't miss out. Tune into the Charles C. W. Cook podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. Republicans go there on the impeachment inquiry. Mitt Romney calls it quits and Joe Biden's bad week. We'll discuss all this more on this expanded panel edition of the editors. I'm Rich Lowry and I'm joined as always by the right honorable Charlotte C.W. Cook, Noah Rothman, Madeline, Maddie Kearns, and last but not least, the notorious M.B.D. Michael Brendan Doherty. You are, of course, listening to a National Review podcast. Our sponsors this episode are Moink and Made In. More about both of them in due course. If for some reason you're not already following us on the streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. If you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So MBD, the impeachment inquiry is upon us. Kevin McCarthy just deemed it an impeachment inquiry, despite being very critical of Nancy Pelosi doing it that way. Initially, with the first Trump impeachment, she eventually went and got a vote. McCarthy says he'll go and get a vote eventually himself, although that is in some doubt, because if he had the votes to do a vote, he would have done a vote already. But what do you make of it? Uh, it's interesting. It, it it brings some questions about, you know, how and how restive the the collection of Republicans in Congress is at this point. And, you know, does Matt Gates and some of the other freedom caucus people have McCarthy scared a little bit, um, in calling this, uh, I, I thought that calling it this early is a risk, um, partly because, um, you know, everyone I know in the, everyone I know who reads or listens to conservative media, is convinced that there is enough material for an impeachment inquiry. Uh, anyone I know who does not make a habit of reading conservative media or, or exposing themselves to it has no idea, right? Like they, they don't know anything. They don't know any of the pieces. They don't know. They don't know the phrase, the big guy. They don't mm -hmm. know the phrase. They don't uh, know anything about Devin Archer's testimony. They don't mm -hmm. know. Um, they don't even know Bob Alinsky, for God's sake. Right. They don't know that the, on the Hunter's laptop that there is, you know, suggestions about the Biden family finances being completely intermingled uh, and Hunter complaining about paying for stuff for Joe Biden, which, you know, is another thing you would look for when you're worried that the son of the vice president is, um, you know, raking in millions of dollars from foreign entities who are looking for influence. Um, so like th there's, I've never seen such a split, uh, before in my life where, um, you know, literally like a guy came to my house last night to install a new dishwasher and he listens to 
Tim Cast, <laughs> Tim Cast, and he know he's like he could run the impeachment inquiry. Like mm-hmm. he, he he has all of this down. Once he figured out I I do something in politics, he laid out the case for me about Biden's impeachment. That's great. But other friends of mine, like literally, do not know do not know any of those other facts because the media has been so reluctant to report on them, connect them, make them you know familiar to people. Um, and so, yeah, I, I feel like you have two worlds looking at this, this move by Kevin McCarthy, and it's going to be interpreted completely differently on each side. Yeah. So no, the, the general public though, the, the polling has moved and Republicans have made progress making the case, which is one reason why you might be cautious uh, about doing this impeachment inquiry because you're you're kind of winning, right? I mean, the investigation has been successful. It has uncovered more evidence and it's getting at least at least some political traction. MBD's right, of course, about the general public not knowing the the details here. Well, that's why I find this maneuver to have uh, a little puzzling save, as Michael said, for the dynamics within the Republican conference. Up to now, uh, James Comer's oversight committee has been uh, playing it very smart and cautiously and letting the facts take them where they may. This is the first time I think they're getting a little bit ahead of themselves. And I don't think it has very much to do with the evidence they've uncovered so far. This wasn't precipitated by any particular bombshell. Um, It was precipitated perhaps by, as Michael said, the restiveness within the Republican conference, though I don't think that has anything to do with his with the, the speaker's position, as McCarthy bluntly told political reporter Olivia Beavers this week, if you think you scare me because you want to file a motion to vacate, move the blanking motion. Um, I think he really means it. Mm-hmm. But the problem is, is that the Republican conference wants impeachment. They also want border security. They also want to shut down the government at the end of the month. Uh, if they don't get uh, additional spending cuts. And uh, the speaker is already in a little bit of trouble with the White House and Senate Democrats for um, failing to abide by the terms of the uh, agreement that was reached the last time we had a uh, a fight over uh, uh, funding the government and a CR and the debt ceiling in May. So it's all internal politics, uh, which cheapens the cause. And we should be honest about that. Uh, up to now, Republicans could make a very... Uh, I think, substantive claim to say that they are um, purely on a fact-finding mission and the facts are really damning from what we know. Do they reach the stage at which we can put a straightforward emoluments case against the president? Not yet. We're not there yet. But there's more than enough smoke to justify doing what the Oversight Committee has been doing. So why why are we calling it an impeachment inquiry when they're doing exactly what they've been doing? To me, it's just it's just a it's a messaging strategy and one that I think puts Republicans a little bit on the back foot because they don't quite have the evidence to justify moving ahead with impeachment. And as everybody has said, including, I think, a lot of people on this podcast, that the inter that the ineluctable logic of an impeachment inquiry is that it must culminate in impeachment. Mm-hmm. It's like Chekhov's shotgun. It must be fired <laughs> whether you have it or not. So, Maddie, I, I think those of us who are kind of skeptical of the impeachment inquiry are going to be in this slightly awkward position. We're like, eh, I wouldn't do the impeachment inquiry. But on the other hand, 
rejecting the, the talking points that have gone out and been picked up by a lot of the media that there's just no evidence. As Abby Phillips of CNN said the other day in an exchange with with Matt Gates, I'm not a big Matt Gates fan, but he was actually pretty good in this exchange with Abby Phillips. She's like, there's no evidence linking Joe Biden to Hunter Biden's uh, business dealings, which is that that was a plausible talking point, perhaps none of us really believed it three years ago. But now, of course, there's there's tons of evidence linking him to what Hunter was doing. Yeah, there's a lot of evidence. And I take uh, the points that have been mentioned in Jim's point in yesterday's morning jolt that the slow drip drip has been very effective in revealing this type of evidence. So obviously, uh, Comer traced the US Treasury suspicious activity reports. I think there's something like 170 of those related to Hunter and his associates. Obviously, there's this very complex web of shell companies, um, and then we can we can see the money moving through them. Um, but one thing I do think impeachment could potentially help with is the um, the next step in this, which is we we really need to have uh, access to the, the Biden family's bank accounts. We're not going to get that without. A, a judge being convinced that, that that's where we're at. And I think that is where impeachment does help. Uh, Kim Strassel had a good column in today's Wall Street Journal saying basically exactly this, the, the easy fruits have been plucked and now now we need to unlock those those other answers. And I think that is one argument I do find quite persuasive in why impeachment is being pursued. Yeah, so Charlie, Kevin McCarthy, when jousting with reporters on this, he's like, look, it's just an inquiry. I, I'm not saying they're high crimes and misdemeanors, but... It, it seems obvious to to Noah's reference to Chekhov and the gun on stage. What are you going to do? Are you going to stop the impeach, impeachment inquiry at some point? And, ah, you know, it's, it's not quite there. You're, you're going to, um, you're kind of on a glad, a glide path to impeachment and s- assuming that you have the, uh, the votes for it. I think that political imperatives have put both parties somewhat wide of the plate. The Democrats have never updated their approach, which is to insist emphatically and increasingly stupidly that Joe Biden did nothing wrong and then to redefine on the fly what that means. The Republicans have largely been pitching down the middle, but now there is impatience in the ranks. Matt, Maddie, these are. these are all all baseball analogies, by the way, Maddie. <laughs> so you know, okay. You'd know, Maddie, if you'd come to that game instead of bailing oh, yeah, on it. Sorry, <laughs> but the the party that McCarthy represents in the House is impatient, and now he's started to pitch a little wide as well. I think this could go either way. I think Noah's analysis is dead on. I also remember that the mere fact of the investigation into Hillary Clinton's emails, which was absolutely legitimate and which reflected a real sin on her part, probably cost her the presidency. So there is still a possibility that even if the Republicans don't successfully convict Joe Biden, which seems almost certain as an outcome, that they will damage him. And I can see the argument that as well as hurting Republicans because impeachment is such a serious charge and it's possible they won't come up with the goods or there will be no conviction, that the opposite will happen, that the mere invocation of the I word in connection with all of the damning evidence that we had will make it more real and more concrete in the minds of voters and draw their attention to it. So I'm not quite sure 
which direction this will go in. But we are now seeing the parting of the seas that you usually see in a highly polarized society, with Republicans getting further than the evidence will allow and Democrats refusing to even countenance it. So, MBD, let's dismiss with all properly modest uncertainty about where this is going to go and say with great certainty where it's going to go. Yes or no, House Republicans will impeach Joe Biden. No, I think they'll come up short of the votes. Well, the I, just for impeachment. Time, yeah, I think wow. I think I, I think if they don't have them now uh, and clearly he doesn't have them now, I'm not sure he's going to get them uh in time that would uh that would not be good no Noah. yeah i think they will i've always thought they will not not because they have the votes now they won't but they don't but i do think they will at an indetermined point in the future because the uh political pressure on republican lawmakers to go along with the will of the majority of the conference will be too strong to resist so, Maddie, a, a while ago, you'd, you'd resolved to have a wildly out of step exit question <laughs> answers. I don't know whether you're still there, but but you're kind of screwed on this one because you get you got uh, two opposite polls here to start with. Well, I, I think everybody sounded more surprised at MBDs, so I'm going to say it was <laughs> as being the, the I know. <laughs> yeah, okay. No. <laughs> two two no's, Charlie. Yes, I think so. Not only for the reasons Noah outlines, but because Kevin McCarthy has proven extremely adept at wrangling a narrow majority and getting the votes he needs. I suspect he will here too, when the stakes have been high, McCarthy has come through. Yeah, I'm going to say yes. I think he'll be able to go to those members who are resistant and just say, look, this is going to be a debacle. For us, it's going to be embarrassment for me. It's going to be embarrassment for the party. It's going to be a big victory for Joe Biden if we come up short. I, you know, we'll get you more money in your district, or I'll come campaign for you, or whatever. Oh, Ken Buck can name his price. <laughs> yeah, he'll use use the dark arts all, all leadership uses in such situations and get there. So, with that, let's hear from our first sponsor this episode, Moink, from small family farms to your dining table. Moink gives you access to the freshest sustainably sourced meat and fish, all while supporting American family farms. You can help save the family farm and get access to the highest quality meat on earth when you join the Moink movement today. Moink delivers grass-fed and grass-finished beef and lamb, pastured pork and chicken, and sustainable wild-caught Alaskan salmon straight to your door. Moink farmers farm like our grandparents did, and as a result, Moink meat tastes like it should because the family farm does it better. The Moink difference is a difference you can taste and you can feel good knowing you're helping family farms stay financially independent too. You choose the meat delivered in every box like ribeyes, to chicken breasts, to pork chops, to salmon fillets, and much, much more. Plus, you can cancel any time. Shark Tank host Kevin O'Leary called Moink's bacon the best bacon he's ever tasted. And Ring Doorbell founder Jamie Siminoff jumped at the chance to invest in Moink. Plus, they guarantee you'll say, oink, oink, I'm so happy I got moinked. We got a delivery here at the Lowry household two weeks ago or so, and we were extremely happy we got moinked. It's kind of an event because this big box shows up uh, packed with dry ice, but it's just a, a wonderful product. My wife, who had forgotten the last time we had moink, was like, what is this? This is amazing. So we, we've talked about Moink a lot on this podcast. We are fervent fans of Moink, 
and for good reason. So keep American farming going by signing up at moinkbox.com slash editors right now. And listeners of this show get free ground beef for a year. That's free. Yes, free ground beef for a year. That's one year of the best ground beef you'll ever taste, but for a limited time, spelled M-O-I-N-K box. Dot com slash editors. That's moinkbox.com slash editors. Please, please, please check it out. You will not regret it. So Mitt Romney is going to retire. He's up there in his 70s, an extremely young looking uh, guy in his mid 70s. I think doing the right thing in terms of age, a... Um, uh, expression, Maddie, of how fast politics, an example, I should say, of how fast politics moves. Republican nominee in 2012. By 2016, he's persona non grata in his party. Runs and wins in Utah, probably the only state he in the union he could have won, uh, run and won in. And I think he's been pretty good center, been creative on policy, has, has been honorable, as you would expect, speaking the truth, even though it's been difficult and not not a lot of fun, uh, one expects for for him to to have been in the Senate. But what do you make of Mitt Romney's legacy? Yeah, so there's different directions you could take his legacy, and there's there's I think um, a convincing case to be made that he's a bit of a shapeshifter. Phil had a great piece on on the homepage today talking about you know how he he began as a um, as a pro-choice moderate, rejecting the the Reagan legacy, and and then w- was really quite instrumental in expanding go- the government role in healthcare with his Romnicare, which in an ironic way became the blueprint for Obamacare. Um, and then he obviously changed his mind and changed his mind quite rapidly when he had presidential ambitions. Now it's strange because you think of Romney as being someone with. A great deal of personal integrity, and I and I do think that as well. But it's hard to square that with these these changes. Um, and then, obviously, in recent years, the the legacy has gone towards just the anti-Trump Republican, uh, you know, voting against Trump in in both impeachment um, impeachments, and um, and and I think he he he'll be remembered well by sort of independents, and and he'll be remembered as a as a deal maker. Uh, he's an increasingly isolated as a Republican, and, and I think one of the few able to work with Democrats on on various things, infrastructure, same-sex marriage, guns. Um, but he's also done things, obviously, that's made him very unpopular with Republicans. And um, I'm not sure he'll be favorably remembered uh, by most Republicans. And I think Utah will remain red and, and will probably elect somebody more conservative than Mitt Romney to replace him. So Noah, what do you make of that that argument about Romney's flexibility? There was a a, a Trumpy influencer on Twitter the other day when um, uh, it came out that Mitt Romney in these conversations with a journalist for The Atlantic, McKay Coppins, had uh, said he had couldn't possibly respect. J.D. Vance, because J.D. had had turned around on on Trump and for such cheap reasons. And then then this guy on Twitter is like, well, well, what about you, Mitt? And then then went over these various iterations of Mitt Romney. Where are you on that question? I think it's a valid criticism. And I I would imagine that other panelists on this podcast have the the receipts, as the kids say. 
and will put more meat on those bones than I will. I will, however, add that if we take it back to 2012, when Mitt Romney eventually became the nominee during the primary process, and I remember being willing to subordinate characterological concerns to my conservative predilections, because I I remember being seduced by Newt Gingrich when he uh, became the conservative alternative in the race for all of about 16 minutes. Um, But past the general election, and I'll never forget this, the day after Mitt Romney lost and Barack Obama won re-election, I was listening to Rush Limbaugh. And Rush Limbaugh said, and you can go check the transcript, that Mitt Romney, as a exemplar character, would have been great for this country. He would have changed the political evolution of this country in a positive direction. And I don't think that's arguable. Given the trajectory that we've been on in the last 12 years, I think it's self-evident. And it's absolutely correct that the man's, whether whatever you think of his personal political inclinations, whatever they may be at the current moment, and they do evolve. And I don't think he has a center ideologically. I do think he has a center characterologically. And -hmm. I think that has been sorely missed in our political class and devalued to a degree that has done us a profound disservice. I can't think of a person in the White House that I would look to and tell my children, that's a person you want to be like Mm -hmm. in the last 12 years. And that's that's a profound deficit that we don't we 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 give it short shrift. We talk about it in abstract terms. It's sort of a, a point of throat clearing. But I don't think we really truly dwell on the degree to which the degradation of the character in the Oval Office really does matter. So, Charlie, what do you make of the argument? You'll hear from some folks that Romney's the reason we got Trump. But obviously, losing wasn't, you know, if he won, history would have been totally different. But people will point to, a friend of mine always points to and says what he thinks really drove Republicans crazy and prepared the ground for Trump was that moment that all of us as obsessives probably remember in the third presidential debate, foreign policy debate, Romney is going at it with um, with Obama on Benghazi and makes a correct factual claim about Benghazi and Candy Crowley, now a long retired CNN moderator, interjects and falsely corrects Romney. And for whatever reason, Romney is taken aback or he doesn't know quite what to say or he said his piece, kind of takes it. And and my friend always makes the point to me, that's when a lot of Republicans said, you know what, we need an animal we need someone who's never going to be slapped down like that before. And it created the appetite for for Trump four years later. I wrote a piece earlier this year, perhaps last year, maybe about this topic. I think that 2012 was a hugely important election in its consequences, but actually was not a particularly unusual election in its form. I think it yielded a freak out in the Republican Party that has been damaging, and that was unwarranted. I have many criticisms of Mitt Romney. He lacks a political core, which is why one of the reactions we've seen on Twitter is Mitt Romney is a squish and should go away. And the other from new right types is Mitt Romney is a right-wing extremist who loved Ryan-esque economics and showed the party why it needed to become more moderate. The truth is that both of those Mitt Romneys exist. 
But Mitt Romney's loss to Barack Obama was not particularly interesting or important or informative. Barack Obama was a very talented man, especially when it came to running for president. The Democrats lost in 2000 and they lost in 2004, and then they won in 2008 and they won in 2012. That's not that unusual. Look at the last few years of American politics. Reagan won twice, then Bush won. That was the unusual part. Then Clinton won twice, then Bush won twice, then Obama ran twice. Quite why, after two losses in a row, not seven, but two losses in a row, and not to some nebbish like John Kerry, but to a generational talent like Barack Obama, quite why the Republican Party decided at that point, okay, that's it, throw it all out. We need Donald Trump to be our nominee, remains beyond me. Quite why that was the moment that it was decided within the Republican coalition that Republicans couldn't win when they crushed it in 2010 and then again in 2014, in between the Romney loss and the Trump win, is likewise beyond me. I think that the Romney loss has been massively overinterpreted. I see this within the grand sweep of history as a fairly standard outcome in a system with two parties and a pendulum. Sometimes the pendulum is caught or external events push it in a different direction than was expected. But usually it swings back and forth. You get Republicans, then you get Democrats. I'm happy to sit and criticize Mitt Romney on any number of grounds. I think that if it is true that Republican primary voters looked at that moment and said, we need Donald Trump, we need everything that has followed 2012, I think they're wrong. I don't think that that moment warranted that response. I don't think that the response has been an improvement. And I think that if Mitt Romney's main crime in the minds of American voters is that, then we misunderstand him and his flaws. So MBD, is Mitt Romney ideologically, does he represent everything you oppose in the Republican Party? No. I mean, it depends when you're asking, though. (laughs) Uh, When he was running to the left of Ted Kennedy on abortion, uh, when he was running in Massachusetts for the Senate seat, yeah, he was pretty close to everything I oppose. You know, back then he was... He was uh, saying that the legacy of Reagan was no good. <laughs> you know, like he was the first guy to criticize zombie Reaganism back in the mm-hmm. 1990s. Um, I, the 2012 campaign version of Romney was in some ways like a proto-Trumpian, right? In, mm-hmm. in that he was to the right of a lot of the field on immigration. He was far more concerned uh, he was way ahead of the curve on criticizing the status quo economically with the united states and china mm-hmm. um those were two huge issues that he correctly picked up on uh that i think obama was weak on um i remember writing at the time when romney lost that you know the pro- one of the problems with the Romney campaign was that he wasn't able to take advantage of Obama's weakness with working class whites and with the working class generally. You know, uh, 
Donald Trump made up for that, right? He made up for that in those key states in the Midwest and by turning out the rural vote to a degree that we'd never really seen before. Um, although only just enough to barely win. Um, because I fundamentally agree with Charlie, like Romney didn't lose by an interesting amount and Trump didn't win by a shocking amount ever mm -hmm. either. Right. Um, you know, in fact, like in some ways, uh, Ron, uh, Donald Trump underperformed Romney, uh, in 2016 yet still won because Hillary Clinton was nowhere near the generational talent that Barack Obama was. Um, you know, I agree with a lot that's been said, uh, however, like I agree with Noah, Mitt Romney's character, he is like a biblical patriarch. Like when you consider him and his family, his background, how well he reflects on his father, mm -hmm. uh, what an outstanding executive he was uh, at Bain uh, and in other enterprises, saving the Salt Lake City Olympics. Um, he is everything I'd want in a neighbor, in, <laughs> uh, in you know, um, in, a men in a business mentor uh family mentor um i think he's a great i i talked had the privilege of talking to his sons for a piece uh years ago uh during that 2012 run i i got got the sense from them that he was a superlative father and i'm envious of him when i see those pictures of his giant brood two three generations out but i really think that in a sense like it was like that sense of his own uh virtue of his hard work, of his of his huge value as a human being, that kind of allowed him to kind of treat politics as like, well, politics is this low down, dirty thing where you know, the, the where they trashed my good father over nothing, um, and so I will allow myself to kind of play the game and switch my convictions to suit you know to suit the. Uh, agenda of getting someone as good as me in office. Um, I think that's like a very believable psychological profile, but it makes it all the more galling to watch him spend this like last two years posing as the most principled man in politics. Because um, it just he never he never missed a political meal over his uh, convictions unless it was this last one. Yeah, yeah. but the, I, the, the Trump thing has been genuine and deeply felt, right? Because it, it goes to the uh, the characterological consistency yeah. that-, well, that no, I, I, I think it's a horrible parallel is that like, you know, in a way, like George Romney was eclipsed by Nixon who ended up getting impeached and uh, his presidency ended up in, in disgrace and moral turpitude and Chuck Colson going to prison- uh, everything and then romney in a sense got eclipsed by trump got mm -hmm. impeached twice and it was a uh, and, and, and counting a moral, don't don't, uh, don't discount uh, you know <laughs> a moral, more a moral a moral brigand and so i can't imagine you know I, psychologically i can't imagine how surreal and disillusioning that might be for someone like romney and how um you know how it could really turn you to be not just like anti uh, populist, but like anti-democratic mm -hmm. in a fundamental way. 
Rich, can I just add briefly to this this notion that seduced Republican voters in 2016 that when the Republican Party thought convinced itself that it no longer won and cited Mitt Romney as the key example of why they no longer mm-hmm. won, won. In 2015, heading into the primaries, the Republican Party controlled a 234-seat majority in the House, a 54-seat majority in the Senate. They had 68 of 99 state legislative chambers in their control and 33 governors, 25 of whom presided over trifectas, meaning they had total control over the state government in half the union. That's what it looked like when the Republican Party didn't win anymore. I love to see that kind of losing. Exactly. Again, what a carnival act. So, Charlie, next question to you. There will be a role for Mitt Romney-style Republicans in the Republican Party in the future. A little, little nebulous there. Let's say kind of, you know, uh, blatant gentlemen like Mitt Romney will will still still have a role in the Republican Party going forward. I hope so. I, Noah says it's not as if the Republicans are winning a great deal. It's not as if they've improved their position. There will always be a role for heterodox Republicans because it's a big country. Republicans actually do quite well in non-red states. There's very often a Republican governor of Massachusetts. We've recently had Republican governors in Maryland. We are going to have to have people who are unacceptable to the median Republican within the party, or it's not going to build a coalition. Whether or not we need them in Utah is an open question. On the gentleman front, though, I don't think one needs to overplay it. Politics is a harsh game. But Trump is certainly an overcorrection for Mitt Romney. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Maddie. So if you could find a combination, then maybe you'd be formidable. Maddie. Yes, I, I think so. Noah. Yes, I also think so. MBD. Um, there, there, there ought to be. I just don't know who's breeding their kids to be gentlemen like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I like to think yeah. I am. Well, yeah, I know, I know, but it's like, will 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 they will, will they be let near power? Yeah, well, no, well, they I never pursue it. Uh, well, there you go. I was about to say, I think this intersects with something we talked about recently, which actually yielded a whole bunch of emails to me from people who had heard the segment. I think that one of the problems is not that America is completely devoid of good, honorable, moral people. I think our politics is such that the vast majority of those people say, I'm not going anywhere near that because I have a reputation that's intact and I don't want to walk into that meat grinder. If you want more figures, they don't have to look like Mitt Romney. If you want more figures who are admirable that you can point your children to, we're going to have to change what we put up with in our politics. And a lot of that comes from the right, unfortunately. A lot of the problem that we have come from the way in which Republican primaries are fought and the way in which Republican institutions, including Republican media institutions, deal with people that they dislike about one thing or another or don't want to make it into office. It's not that those people don't exist. I don't think it's just Mormons or the Romney family that produces people of quality and character. I think they just say, I'm staying away uh, away from that. They're also... also So I think there are... There still is a little class of patricians that have that noblesse oblige, but there, there's a, 
a larger problem in the country too that it's not just the patricians it's also like military families are no longer sending their sons into the military like there's a there's something is broken between the this you know what used to be the basis of american civic culture which is Mm -hmm. we've done well and the country has done well by us and and we feel in our family a duty towards public service or military service in the same way something something is is broken there it's not it's not just the and in many ways side. and in many ways it broke in 2012 why well, you would be foolish to try to send your kids into the services if they're going to be discharged for using the wrong pronoun you would be foolish to seek high office if you're going to be accused as mitt romney was accused of complicity in negligent homicide right it, a lot of it broke in that year republicans do have a point when they say we need to fight fire with fire and it started in that year for a reason so I'm a little skeptical how many more Mitt Romneys we're going to get kind of ironically for the Mormon guy. He's kind of the last wasp in uh, yes. American politics. But that said, I don't think the Republican Party is going to uh, be made uh, up of uh, complete jerks because that does not uh, that does not work everywhere. So with that, let's hear from our second sponsor, Maiden Cookware. Maiden has spoken to a lot of people who use their cookware, and they found that people consistently say two things. They can feel the difference when they use made-in products, and they can taste a difference in their cooking. Born from a 100-year family business specializing in high-end restaurant supply, Made-in works with celebrated chefs and expert artisans to craft elegant, professional-quality cookware for restaurant and home kitchens alike. Discover your best dinners ahead with artisan-made restaurant-quality cookware, top professional chefs, Use Maiden, including Tom Calicchio, Brooke Williamson, Grant Ackett, and Stephanie Izzard, and many, many more. Maiden's award-winning non-stick cookware has a double-layer professional-grade non-stick coating. Maiden's stainless clad is nearly indestructible and has unparalleled heat retention, making for even heat distribution. Maiden's carbon steel cookware can handle up to 1,200 degrees and is perfect for cooking on your stove, grill, or even an open flame. Plus, they have an extensive collection of knives, bakeware, glassware, plateware, and more. We found this all to be true in the Lowry kitchen. Our Maiden pans are indeed great to handle. They cook evenly, and very, very importantly, they are easy to clean. So Maiden cookware gets our highest recommendation, especially my wife's recommendation. Editors, listeners, can get 10% off full-priced items on orders of $100 or more from Made In. For full details, visit madeincookware.com slash editors. That's madeincookware.com slash editors. One of my colleagues just got some Made In Cookware uh, as well and was singing its praises this morning. So it really is indeed great stuff. So speaking of Great stuff, although not so welcome in the White House. This shouldn't be a seismic event, but was was notable. Charlie David Ignatius, the foreign policy columnist uh, at the Washington Post, a member of the establishment with a capital E, to the extent there there is one anymore, in good standing, wrote a notable column this week saying that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris should step aside. So dealing both with the Biden problem and the factor that is stopping more folks left of center and Democrats from saying this openly because they're afraid if, if Biden goes, they're just throwing themselves into the arms of Kamala Harris. I am in the middle of a piece on this for the website in which I argue that there are two Joe Bidens, 
There is the Joe Biden that has been created by the press and by democratic strategists. And then there is the Joe Biden that voters can see. And the Joe Biden that voters can see is not popular and does not bear any relation to the avatar. The Joe Biden that people can see is not the master of Bidenomics who saved the economy from rapacious capitalists and Donald Trump, but has presided over and is to blame for a period of inflation and high interest rates. The Joe Biden that people can see is old, senile even, seems confused and out of it. It's not the energetic figure who does push-ups with one arm and confounds his staff with his energy. The Joe Biden that people can see is not trustworthy or honest, but is a serial fabulist who is much more deeply involved in his son's perfidy than he himself has admitted when asked. And my theory here is that the more realistic and more perspicacious members of the press have started to realize that the public no longer believes in the false Joe Biden. They are no longer persuaded by journalists who say, no, actually, he's young and with it. No, actually, he did nothing wrong. No, actually, the economy's good. And I think they're panicking. Now, I don't know whether they should be, because on the other side of the aisle, there is a candidate, Donald Trump, who has just as many, if not more, problems than Biden, and who may well lose to Biden nevertheless. But David Ignatius, who you mentioned and who wrote that column saying that Biden should step aside, said pretty clearly that Biden has trouble saying no and has put himself in a whole bunch of positions that he should not have. And the part he didn't say but implied was that the public has noticed. And he's worried about it. Axios had a line on this the other day that there is a big gap between what Joe Biden has said and what has been admitted in sworn testimony. And I think that there will be more of these people. I think there will be more figures within the press who say, we need to get rid of Joe. The fact that it's extended to Kamala Harris is obvious. One of the reasons that there was so much circling of the wagons around Joe Biden is that the alternative seemed to be Kamala Harris. And she's even worse. She's even less liked. But at this late and difficult stage, I think those who have advanced this argument have realized, well, we can't keep him. It's too risky. And she can't be allowed to be an impediment to that either. So they both have to go. The mechanics of that would be very, very difficult yeah. to achieve. It's yeah, as, one he, thing as Ignatius acknowledges. Yeah. yeah, it's one thing to say it. It's another to do it. It's very difficult to get rid of Joe Biden when he wants to run again. It's very difficult to find someone around whom the party can coalesce. And then you have the prospect, which fills me with unalloyed glee, of watching the party that is obsessed with identity politics explain why it's inspiring that Kamala Harris was vice president, but wouldn't be if she were president. I would eat all the popcorn and drink all mm -hmm. the wine in the world watching that. <laughs> 
but they are noticing. I think they know. I think they have realized that the gap between what they want people to think of Biden and what they think of Biden is so large now that he's an enormous liability heading into next year and could well cost the Democrats the White House. So, Maddie, another factor here is he continues to have low ratings on the economy. We had inflation news this week, a, a little higher than expected. Gas prices are going up again. And there's a poll, I forget which one. There have been a lot of polls last couple of days of a potential Biden-Trump matchup and had Trump, I don't know, ahead 10 points on the economy or something. Yeah, the White House's embrace of the term Bidenomics or Bidenomics, I don't actually know how you pronounce it, but in any case, it reminds me of um, the way in which Biden tried to handle the Afghanistan withdrawal with the whole, the buck stops with me. It's really, you know, an attempt to sound like you're in control of a situation by taking ownership of it, anticipating the criticism, getting ahead of it. But other than, you know, the, there's certain things they can sort of misleadingly point to, like job growth or a slight decline in income inequality or slight decline in the the wage the perceived wage gap between men and women um really it, it doesn't make much of a difference because the thing that people really notice is re like their income their household income which has declined in real terms um and prices and prices remain high families have been forced to cut back on spending increase their credit card usage and exhaust savings. And, and that's obviously due to two years of very high inflation. And, and I don't think there's really any way that you can talk your way out of that. So Noah, another event this this week, it's a uh, lowdown here and uh, where we've discussed stuff, which is a sign of other important things going on. But Hunter Biden is indicted on the gun charge. This, this case has been uh, mishandled from the beginning, uh, likely deliberately by David Weiss, the prosecutor up there in uh, Delaware. There was a, a ridiculously uh, generous plea deal that fell apart upon its first scrutiny by the judge involved. And now we may maybe we'll get another plea deal, but there's there's an actual charge on the table. Yeah, I can't actually speak to uh, the legal process here or the law that he violated. Charlie had a pretty interesting piece on this a couple of days ago, uh, indicating that Hunter Biden's lawyers intend to appeal the Supreme Court's decision in Bruin. Um, and at the very least, we're going to have a United States v. Biden. Who knows how far up the chain it goes on appeal, but we have that on the docket. Um, at the very least... To the extent that we've been talking about how the general public is just not tuned in to the Hunter Biden stuff, it's becoming increasingly hard to avoid. And one of the biggest, I think, uh, uh, detriments to this White House is the extent to which the Justice Department ran way out in front of this thing in an effort to try to sweep Hunter Biden's legal troubles under the rug. Um, it's just one of those scandals that you can sum up in a sentence and defusing it requires a lot more exposition. So that in, intuitively, you would think that would resonate more with voters than not. Hunt, Joe Biden, the president, control of the Justice Department, and the Justice Department did everything in its power to shield the president's son from the consequences of his actions. That's it. I mean, that's about as easy as a scandal as you can get is probably the an elementary scandal. Um, so insofar as the president's son's uh, 
conduct is sort of hard to get your hand around because it involves all these moving parts and foreign actors and there's a lot of bank accounts and receipts and it takes place years and years ago here we have something that you can just wrap your hands around in the space of a lead paragraph of a story and that's deadly so mbd there was someone who's making the case the the other day that you know the age issue never really works in presidential politics and you know, if you're going after Reagan and, you know, he's he's popular and the economy is roaring and, you know, he, he has some misstatements here or there. I think it's a different phenomenon than than what Democrats are are facing here, where you have super majorities just saying he's too old to do this again. He's too old to do this again. And it's, it's understandable that they think, you know, all the focus can be on Trump. Maybe it will be. Things are going to happen next year if Trump's the nominee, trials, perhaps convictions, who knows what else. So, it's not it's not necessarily a crazy bet, but it's not going to be 2020 again either because they're going to have to overcome this this view of of Biden, which is as Charlie says, is just obvious to people, right? You don't need to run ads about it. You don't don't need to do anything. You just just let people uh, see the president yeah, perform with their own eyes. And of course, like the campaign could expose it even more, right? Like it is, you know. Joe Biden protected himself in some ways during the 2020 campaign by using um, the pandemic as a, as a reason to stay in the basement and kind of just issue press releases and do a low appearance campaign. But if you're the Republican candidate, you're going to beg for debates. And if you're the Democrats, you're going to feel pressured to put him out there to show the world like he can do this. And what's he going to do? He's going to like he's going to do exactly what Shane Gillis said in his latest latest comedy special. Like when Joe Biden finishes a speech, he turns into a Roomba. Like he just starts spinning around, looking, <laughs> looking for the direction he's supposed to go in. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of pointing. <laughs> yeah, it's, this way um, or this way. You know, it, it's it's bad. I mean, he Joe Biden looks w- much worse more aged, more enfeebled than he did six months ago. Like if you just, mm-hmm. uh, it, the decline looks bad and it's obvious. And it was very obvious in the last foreign trip. Um, and even if his foreign policy team is, is racking up, you know, things that they think are victories, he just doesn't look like someone you trust. And the voters are, are, are ex- mm-hmm. ex- screaming for an alternative and they're not i don't no i don't think they're gonna get one yeah i I wrote a column about this uh, i wrote a column about this this week and the the two parties are ending up in the same place for vastly different reasons so on the democratic side it's misbegotten calculation it's like this guy is 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 the best he's the trump slayers we just got to stick stick with him even if we're not happy with it or at least the the grassroots isn't necessarily happy with it and the republican side is this misbegotten passion that we talked about earlier in this week you know uh in the episode earlier this week the iowa iowa state game just people uh besotted with Trump, just feeling this ardor for Trump, where it'd be much better to be more careful, deliberate, and thoughtful about it. But exit question to you, Charlie. Hypothetically, you're a Democrat who really wants Joe Biden to win. Rate what you believe should be or would be your level of alarm about Joe Biden's prospects. Zero. Ah, don't worry. We got this. We got this in 2020. We're going to get it again. People will uh, understand how great the economy is and how effective he's been, et cetera. Or 10. This is a, a five alarm fire. We are uh, um, 
uh, an extreme danger zone in terms of of beating um, Donald Trump potentially in 2024? I think I'd be a seven. The polling is just dire. And again, the only argument that I can see that is advanced is but Trump. That's just not the position that you want to be in when you're the incumbent president. Matt? Um, I actually think it'd probably be a bit four because I think the the faith that, that Trump will actually win or the thought that Trump will actually win is is quite you know, it's quite low, I think, especially just with all his own legal trouble. Um, it sort of overshadows some of these issues. All right. So that, that puts you in the anti-bedwetter camp, Jim Messina, <laughs> James Carville and others, just just uh, pushing back against so-called bedwetters Noah. It's sort of a complicated answer because I would be about a five, but I also think the Democratic Party's realization of the peril that they're in means they're going to run a little bit more scared, which would be to their advantage um so mm -hmm. if there's a five or six level of anxiety it would help them and if they're going up against trump i do think that they have more reason than not to expect the voters will do what they did in 2020 and 2022 and subordinate their concerns about the economy to the unpalatability of the other candidate but no, isn't that a separate question than the one asked? Because I too think that Biden would probably win. But the question here is whether those who want Biden to win should be panicked about the liability that he represents, right? I yes. Because if you had yes. an Obama, then you would crush Trump. You wouldn't be sitting saying, well, I wonder how it's going to come out. But they are saying that. <laughs> Yeah, well, I said, and as I suggest, I think that's a self-reinforcing situation in which their apprehension and anxiety and the understanding that this isn't a gimme leads them to run a more aggressive campaign. In, in market contrast, by the way, with what Republican voters expect, Republican voters don't understand how they can lose based on the yeah. based on the focus groups, based on the polling. Oh, they yeah. really they think, think it's, it's in the back. Booing. Yeah, it's it's another contrast. The, the Democrats are extremely fearful, but going to stick with Biden anyway, or, or that's one reason they're going to stick with Biden, because they're, they're so fear, fearful of the alternative, whereas Republicans are in love with Trump and, and totally confident he'll overcome any obstacle. MBD, if you're the hypothetical Democrat, zero to 10 for your state of alarm. I'm like at a nine. I mean, this guy's, I, is this guy going to make it to the end of this year? I, I'm seriously worried you're going to get stuck with Kamala Harris. I'm looking at the polling and what I'm seeing is that as millennials have gotten older, they're getting Trumpier. And that should freak me the hell out. Um, the, Trump is more acceptable now as a candidate to Americans than he has ever been. Now, that doesn't mean that people like him because it, like there was a joke this week on Twitter and it was perfect. It was like, if you poll the American people, is Donald Trump going to hell? Like 93% of people would say yes, but then he's, would you vote for Trump against mm -hmm. Joe Biden? And Trump is up by four or five points. Yeah, I mean, if he's better on the economy, like uh, a lot of people won't care I, about anything else. I'm sorry, but I, like, I I would be totally freaked out if I was Democrat. Yeah, I'm, I'm with that media. I'm up at an eight. That doesn't mean it'd be easy to to do anything about it. And Biden's choice of Kamala Harris for vice president is is probably the the worst VP choice. And I don't know, you know, close to a hundred years. Or something. With that, a real quick bonus exit question. 
there is a, a, a trend online with uh, wives asking their husbands, how often do you talk, uh, think about the Roman Empire? And, and sh shockingly, a lot of the guys say, every day, of course, every day. Why not? So uh, we're going to go to the, the non-man, the woman. Sorry, I was almost <laughs> speaking in woke terms there, Maddie. I know what a woman is, and you are one. So let's start start with you, though. Do you do you think about the Roman Empire every day? No, but I, I think this this applied to men, didn't it? So I, I you wouldn't expect me to say yes. Yes, that is correct, Noah. <laughs> uh, if I spent all day thinking about the founding, I would probably be thinking about Rome a lot. The, the, this country was founded on cautionary tales about a Roman Republic. But if you asked how many times a day do you think about the Soviet Union, it would be multiple times per day in my case. Mm, okay. MBD. Yeah, I mean, I I probably think about it like five out of seven days a week. It, it, it occurs. To me. <laughs> really? Something, oh, yeah. The Roman Empire, of course. Yeah. Something wow. occurs to me about it, you know. Um, mm -hmm. Whether it could be a tiny thing, it could be just, oh, you know, the Catholic Church is kind of like this holdover institution from the Roman Empire. Oh, you know, um, Marcus Aurelius thought this or said this just before that happened. I, you know, something will come to me once a day. To well, clarify, it's not day. just, I think most people would think about similarities rather than distinctions. And I often think about distinctions more than similarities. Okay. Charlie. I think I'm going to have my man card to vote, <laughs> but I very rarely think about the Roman Empire. I do if I'm thinking about the American founding, because as Noah points out, the founders were obsessed with it. If I'm thinking about the grand sweep of history, I suppose it comes up, but this idea that I would think about it every day is just alien oh, to me. Oh, it's so weird. Like, it's just like random things like, wow, like when the Roman Empire retreated, like the like the British went back to like thatched roofs for <laughs> hundreds of years. But why would that come up? I don't know. Just I'm thinking about architecture <laughs> and then suddenly I'm thinking about the Romans. Do you think about architecture every day? You know, or like my son asked the other day, like how old are roads? And I just started talking ah, about the Roman empire. That's well, like, okay. That's an interesting. That one that's that's interesting. Up. That's a good also, question. All sorts of things come up. I'm like, well, these roads around here that are paved, I mean, they're paved every 10 years or so. You know, they get repaved pretty often. But like, I was like, well, there are roads from Rome that, uh, you know, still exist today 2,000 years later. Oh, wow. Yeah. You know, there's someone who's saying like the, the one of the great innovations of Manhattan is the, the grid system of roads. Like, no, <laughs> you know, it's like millennia uh, before before Manhattan came up with it. I, I think about it every day just because I've been in this phase. I posted about this yesterday where I've been interested in how we get from the fall of Rome to um, uh, er early modern Europe. So I've been listening to a lot of podcasts where I scroll through and there'll be, you know, some some Roman episode. And I also prop up my devices on a, a couple books having to do with with Rome. So maybe that's cheating. Most of my adult life, I have not thought about Rome every what day the, so for, for whatever the, that's worth charlie if that makes other, you feel better one other thing it does one other thing i think about rome too because people didn't know when the roman empire stopped existing right like they they continued living and you know reading virgil and quoting pliny and so on for hundreds of years mm -hmm. and, you know into the byzantine empire beyond well into the middle ages people still kind of felt themselves to be living in it and that's what i often think about is like 
are we still living in like an empire ah, that actually right. people, centuries wow. later people will be like oh, so you wait. think about it every day because it's depressing and well like, like people might <laughs> because i think like oh is it going to be obvious centuries hence like oh the american empire died on 9 11 or like mm-hmm. oh the american empire died at the end of the cold war and we're just living in it like the way that people lived happily lived and died happily thinking they were still living in in what uh, others will say was was already gone i don't know mm-hmm. that, i think about that though all the time yeah i mean that the west the west definitely fell right but the, the people forget the east lasted for another thousand years and in large part because of of amazing walls that that couldn't be breach but anyway we've run long here uh this is this has been great but we have a, have had an expanded panel as mentioned at the beginning so let's get very quick like a sentence on what else has been going on so uh mbd wedding coming up this weekend yeah i'm heading to a wedding with uh we're taking a couple kids and my wife's cousin's getting married in new jersey and it's just going to be a very blessed occasion we love the girl that she he's marrying and uh, then there'll be some golfing among the men, and that'll be the close of the golf season, I think. So it'll be great. Uh, and discussion of the Roman Empire. <laughs> Absolutely. So, Noah, quickly, you have a birthday party, kids' birthday party coming up. Yep. Birthday month is almost halfway over, and the kids' joint birthday is tomorrow. And there's like 100 people that are going to be there. It's a, it's wow. an extravagant. Wow. Yeah, and I'm not joking. Whoa, when that's, I say this thing that's ambitious. It's far too much. Whatever. What's wrong with going bowling? For 20 minutes with 12 kids <laughs> calling it a day now we have to we do it up but it's almost over and then uh, my other son's birthday is at the end of the month and september will be blessedly over there's that great kid's birthday scene and i think it's starsky and hutch do, do you know what i'm talking about where a horse and a pony the pony ends up shot i think that uh, <laughs> that's a great that's a great we movie. don't go that far um yeah <laughs> talk about rome talk about a roman accent. so so maddie w- one word scones yeah, well, I would say scones, um, but I'm still in the UK, head back on Saturday, and we've just been making the most of the last of British scones with clotted cream and jam. It's just a, a rare delicacy. You actually can't get clotted cream in the US. I think the mm-hmm. FDA's banned it for some reason, but there you go. The word clotted has Charlie. something to do with it. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. Charlie. I have been listening to Paul Simon. Jeff Bleha wrote a piece about Simon and Garfunkel. I love Simon and Garfunkel, and I went through their discography. And then I branched out into Paul Simon, who really was terrific on his own as well, especially when he worked with Lady Smith Black Mambazo on his African-tinged album Graceland, which I've been playing nonstop. So I enjoy every morning walking out or, or um, driving by, at least by New York Post, which is the only print newspaper I get delivered anymore. I used to get five when I was uh, back in the day living in in Manhattan. But I feel an emptiness every day if I do not look at my print New York Post. Even if I've looked checked the website a couple times already, there's just something about this paper that just clicks and uh, is is gratifying to leaf through with that it's time for our editor's picks let's just go headline author noah rothman oh that's so hard this is i really want to talk about it but it's bob zubrin who was at work i just adore his latest is has nasa found a second genesis in the constellation leo k218b which has an atmosphere that's mostly hydrogen but it is producing biomarkers suggestive of microbial life um, okay that's cheating that's that's cheating <laughs> could go on for so long I <laughs> Ma- love this guy. maddie kearns 
Uh, my pick is a piece by Christian Schneider called Tom Hanks is a Boring Hack, which I clicked on. <laughs> I clicked on in absolute horror. Thinking, yeah, same. What? Who could possibly? And then I realized that was entirely the point. It's a brilliant piece of satire. Highly recommend. MBD. Um, my pick is Charlie's podcast with Niall Ferguson, Cold War II. Charlie. Andy McCarthy, what to make of the Hunter Biden gun indictment? Kevin Hassett. UAW anticipating an electric shock. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National Review podcast. Any rebroadcast, retransmission, or account of this game without the express written permission of National Review magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Shuddy, who makes it sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Noah. Thank you, Maddie. And thank you, MBD. Thanks to Moink and Made In. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. We'll see you next time.